Yo, 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 what is going on, everybody? It's your boy, Amateur Maxi here, bringing you episode four of the Amateur Analytics Podcast. Today is April 4th, 5th, my bad, April 5th, 2019, and uh, we got a lot to talk about today's episode, so let's just jump right into it. Um, In the music section, um, not a lot to talk about in the music, uh, only one new album came out, it was Nav's album, which was pretty good in my opinion and there was a logic single um starting with the logic single the confessions of a dangerous mind um a little disappointed it was a little lukewarm uh (laughs) i guess after keanu reeves my expectations were pretty high i guess from him because you know i felt like logic was finally transitioning into that newer more modern style and in confessions of a dangerous mind he is but the stuff he was talking about has been like the topic of Logic fans recently is like, you know, it sounds like while he's trying to be about positivity and there's nothing wrong with that, I feel like he's overselling it versus just putting snippets of the positivity into his music. He's just constantly talking about, oh, you know, we got to look out for each other. We got to do this. We got to do that. There's nothing wrong with that, but I feel like he's he's overselling it, you know? It's one thing if he mixes it in with a few songs, but I feel like after the Everybody album... After that, uh, the Suicide Hotline song really blew up, that's what really made Logic go, like, okay, this positive thing works, and he's been running with it a lot. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with positivity out there, but I do want to hear, like, you know, classic Logic. Like, I want to hear, like, under pressure Logic. That's what I want to hear from him, and to hear this song, I I was like, meh, it's alright. Um, at the time of this recording, though, he does... That supermarket book that he wrote came out, and there's a soundtrack to go with it. I personally haven't listened to it yet. I'm probably going to give it a listen soon. Probably today, actually. I'll probably do it when I'm on my way to work. But I'll give it a listen on the next episode. I'll probably talk about it if I like it. If not, I'll probably slander it. I don't know. I, I don't want to slander Logic, but sometimes, man, his hit and miss. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, moving on from Logic, main topic of discussion in the music session is the Nav album. Let me say this. I was pleasantly surprised by this one. I, I'm i kind of new to Nav. Not really new, but I've, Nav's been around for a while, but I never really listened to his music. So I was pretty much just waiting on his actual next album to come out so I could actually listen to him. Because I didn't really like go back and listen to all of his old stuff like I normally do. But I was waiting on this album. So I was like, okay, when this album comes out, I'll give it a listen and see what we're looking at. So I gotta say, it's pretty good, man. I... It's pretty good, but I will say that Nav is an acquired taste. I do feel like if you aren't into that young, rich kid kind of rap, then you probably won't rock with Nav like that. I have a few people I talk to about it. They're like, yeah, it's all right. But to me, Nav album was great. Uh, the song that really stood out to me was uh, Why You Crying Mama, which is like, uh, it was kind of like every every rapper does like their song that they kind of dedicate to their mother. And that was... Nav's version of it, I really like it, it was a really catchy hook, it was a really nice little story about how, you know, he's saying, you know, mama, like, you're, don't, don't worry, you know, I'm not changing, I'm still the same, you know, son that you've been raising, taking care of, like, I'm, I've gotten more money on me now, but I'm not, you know, I'm not drastically different from what I used to be. Other song, another favorite of mine was Price on My Head with The Weeknd, honestly, The Weeknd really carries that song, like, his vocals, Weeknd's always been the GOAT, but, like, he really killed it on Price on My Head, uh, Time Pieces, with Lil Durk, which is actually a song I didn't think I would like the very first time I heard it. I was like, usually when I go, when I get an album, I usually read all the song titles. I'm just like, I kind of like have like a little game where I guess to see which song I'm going to like. And I thought Time Pieces was going to be okay. 
turned out to be a pretty good song. I really was fucking with it. Lil Durk actually, it actually has a really good verse on that song. For me not to be a big fan of him, I was really vibing with his verse on that. After that, it was um, Athlete. Athlete was really good. Uh, Habits is really good. Fun fact about Habits, from what I've heard, there was a rumor that Lil Uzi was supposed to be on Habits, but because of his whole situation with his label, his verse was taken off. And that's super disappointing to hear because I think Uzi should have done this album period, but we all, anyone who's an Uzi fan knows that Lil Uzi's not going to be been having like a struggle with his label and being able to put out his music. Hopefully he gets freed from that soon. There is a hashtag free Uzi thing going around, and I hope he does get freed so he can, you know, make music as much as he wants and be on people's albums as much as he wants. Um, so that's disappointing here that his verse wasn't on Habits. Snap was another song I was really vibing with, really catchy, very kind of classic. I would say classic Nav, or like something that's like Nav's earlier stuff that I've heard prior to this, so it was very reminiscent of that, and really good album, the only thing that was weird about this album though was like, it came out, and then like, three days later, he went on Twitter, Nav went on Twitter and announced like, the deluxe version was dropping at midnight, we're all like, why didn't you just drop the deluxe version, the deluxe version had a few more songs on it, uh, Athletes, part of the deluxe version, Habits, it's part of the deluxe version of a song called Amazing with Future on there. That song's pretty decent. That song was on it. But it's like, what was the point of dropping your album to be like, oh yeah, um, here's here's the other like here's the other half of it or the other quarter of it. We're all like, dude, why didn't you just drop it all at once? But you know, wh- whatever. Whatever. It, still a good album. If if you haven't listened to Nav and you may have heard about him, but you're not sure about his music. I say give this album a chance. You might find some songs that you like. Like I said, it is one of those young, rich boy, getting his money type album. If you're not into that whole, I'm young, I'm rich, I'm balling, I'm stunned on hoes type rap, then you won't rock with it. Because I would say it's similar to Migos rap, but it's a bit more, it's a bit more, I want to say... Mm, schoolboy level i say migos and i say that saying that the migos their version of this style is like very hood very like you know we from the streets type shit nav is kind of like nah i wasn't really i grew up in the streets quote unquote but you know i'm a i'm a young rich nigga i got my i'm a young rich boy i got my money this is rich boy shit not rich nigga shit it's there's a there's a difference if you listen to music you know what i'm talking about about the difference between young rich niggas and then like young rich boys type shit so if you if you were willing to give that a chance i say definitely give the nav album a listen like i said there are some hitters up there like i said uh price on my head why you crying mama timepieces athlete habits snap there's a lot to listen to and maybe you'll find something you like and uh yeah be sure to check out the nav album it's really really good it's on all platforms of course and honestly that's it I, that's all i got for the music section the music section is super short this week i didn't really have anything like I said, that supermarket thing by Logic is out, but I haven't listened to it, and I'll probably give it a listen later. And then, like I said, maybe on next episode, I'll talk about, you know, when, like, what I thought of it. Maybe, like I said, maybe slander. Don't want to slander, but I might anyway. Who knows? Uh, moving on to the video games portion of the podcast. Um, one of the things I have here on my show notes is that uh, Cuphead was announced uh, for the Switch, which is really cool because... Cuphead, for those of you who don't know, is a game that came out. It was a very big, big indie game. These two developers put their heart and soul into this game. And that's what's so amazing. These guys had to, like, really give it all their time. It's, like, a very, um... It's made in the art style of, like, I think, 50s cartoons. Uh, yeah, it's, like, 50s cartoons. So, like, early Mickey Mouse cartoons. It's made in that kind of art style. And everything's animated beautifully in the game. It's an amazing-looking game. 
And like I said, the developers put a lot of hard work into it. They literally had to remortgage their houses <laughs> just to finish this game. And when it came out, it was a huge success. It was an Xbox exclusive, which kind of sucked for it because not necessary. Not saying that you know Xbox doesn't deserve to have exclusives, but honestly, Xbox is empty game, so they need everything they can get. But it sucks because because it sucks because how well this game was. If it would have been on like. Steam, PS4, like Switch, it would have been on that stuff from the beginning. It would have really sold a lot more. But now that it's finally being moved to Switch, it's, I feel like it's gonna get more recognition and more sales that it that I feel like it personally deserves. You know, it's a really fun, it's a really challenging game. It's a super super hard game, real real ball buster. If you're into that kind of like super challenge, almost to the point of feeling unfair type of game, but it has that factor of like. You die, but you want to come back and you want to beat it type feel. If you're into that, this is the perfect game for you. So it's finally be on the Switch. And I think it's actually a really nice fit for the Switch. Um, the Switch, it's portable, so now you can take it on the go. And it, it, the art style really fits with the Switch's portability, if you guys know what I mean by that. It's kind of like a game that I could see myself playing this on the go. It's a very fun game that's on the go. So that's cool. So Cuphead's on the Switch. Shout out to the people who made Cuphead. You guys did a really good job of the game, and I hope it sells exponentially well i know it will i know it's gonna do great on the switch so that's really cool the other thing that was pretty cool in the gaming section here is that uh borderlands 3 got announced um now i've never played any of the borderland games i've seen borderlands 2 in action and i was really really interested in it but i never got around to actually getting it myself but i really did like what i saw so Borderlands has kind of been, not in limbo, because they did have the Telltale game, R.I.P. Telltale, but they had the Telltale game, which was pretty, which I heard was pretty decent, but it's like, you know, it's kind of nice to finally hear that Borderlands has been, Borderlands 3 is being made, has been announced, and it's actually coming out September 13th of this year, that's, that's a big shock, because most of the time when they announce games, usually at least a year out, you know, but to hear that it's coming out this year, that's what's really, really exciting, I definitely want to jump on this one, I've Maybe I can get me and my boys to play. Then we can all play Borderlands 3. That's really cool. Um, moving on from that, uh, Mortal Kombat 11 has been confirmed by the developers to run at 60 frames per second on the Switch. Now, this is very interesting because the Switch, while it's a pretty decent console, it's not that powerful. And I'm curious to see this in action for myself i mean i've heard that some people have played and they say it does run at, at 60 frames but i want to see it for myself and i want to see if it actually holds to it when the retail release actually comes out because the switch just it, it, it chugged trying to play breath of the wild you know what i'm saying like there are there are little frame rate issues i mean during after patches breath of the wild ran smooth but even still it's like there were frame rate issues with the original like breath of the wild on the switch and it's kind of interesting to see that mortal kombat a fighting game Something that's pretty graphically intensive, too. Like, Mortal Kombat doesn't look as... It doesn't have that cel-shaded art style that Breath of the Wild has. So, for it to be able to run so smoothly on the Switch, which could barely run or could had troubles running Breath of the Wild, it's interesting to see how they're going to make this work. So, I'm curious to see that. That's really cool. I mean, hey, if they can make it work, that's going to make it better. Because, me personally, though, I wouldn't be playing... Mortal Kombat on my Switch because the Joy-Cons I feel like are too flimsy of controllers to do so. That's one of the reasons I didn't buy Dragon Ball Fighters on my Switch either because it's just like I couldn't, there's no way I could play 
a fighting game on my Switch. Like, there's too much movement. It's too much, like, you gotta have a really sturdy controller. And to me, the Joy-Cons are too fragile. Because even right now, my uh, my left Joy-Con, I don't know who's out there's experience. I've heard other people have. But my left Joy-Con actually is kind of busted. Um, when I move, when I hold up on the Joy-Con, sometimes it kind of, like, just locks. And it'll get stuck in that position. And it, it'll cause, like, actions in the games I'm playing or the characters that I'm controlling to move upward when I don't want them to, even if I move my finger off of it. So probably have to buy a new left Joy-Con, which is like $50, which is ridiculous, but I gotta do what I gotta do. But yeah, so I'm not gonna be getting this on my Switch. If I do get Mortal Kombat 11, I'm definitely getting it on my PS4. Don't have a PC, so I can't play on PC, but I'm definitely getting it on my PS4 because playing it on Switch is just a no-go. So that's the news for Mortal Kombat 11. Moving on from that, we have the Sony State of Play. So this... This was something that is, is very interesting because, as we all know, if you don't know, you're about to know now that uh, Sony has gone on record, this has confirmed that this year they will not be attending E3, which is a big shock because it's one of those things where, oh snap, you know, like, Sony's one of the big dogs. When it comes to E3, this is what we look forward to. Sony's the press conference I look forward to. I really don't care about Microsoft press conference because I don't have an Xbox. I don't care. So to find out that one of that the company that I look forward to watching at E3 isn't going to be there was a big shock. But then they announced they're doing this thing called the State of Play, which essentially is Sony's spin on the Nintendo Direct. That's interesting because a lot of people have been saying for years that Nintendo's been ahead of the game. When it comes to doing, when it comes to not showing a free three, because if for those of you who don't know, Nintendo doesn't really go to E3 that much. They really don't have like a traditional press conference. They may have something on their show floor and they may show a few trailers, but they don't have a traditional E3 show like they used to because they started doing Nintendo Directs. Now Sony is doing their version of it, calling it the State of Play. It's kind of like the State of the Union. I get it; it's a joke, but to me, it sounds like Sony's being super pretentious. It's like you know. For anybody who's been watching the Sony press conferences, everyone knows that Sony's had their heads up their own asses for, like, years. And it's just, like, calling it the state of play is like, oh, wow, look at us. We're going to call our our directs the state of play. Like, like we're the like we're the president of how, of the gaming, of the video game landscape. It's like, guys, calm down, all right? And for your first state of play, very, very underwhelming. That's it. Like, it, it was super underwhelming. Like, I didn't see anything that piqued my interest. And I get it, you know, it's a commercial. Essentially, it's just like a, a commercial. And I'm like, I'm looking at what they're showing off. I'm like, none of this really interests me. There's an Iron Man game that's on VR. What? <laughs> like, like, what? Like, there's an Iron Man game on VR? Like, I'm not about to buy a VR to get an Iron Man game. Like, who the hell was like, yeah, dog, let's make an Iron Man game. Let's make it for the VR, bro. Like, that's totally what the what the, the masses want. No one's made an Iron Man game before, so if any Iron Man game were to come out, people would be like, yo, if it's made by the same team that made if it's made by Insomniac and Insomniac made it like they did Spider-Man, Iron Man game will be fire. Show us an Iron Man game. And it's on the VR, and I don't want that shit. Like, who's who's like, who's like really going to buy a VR to get this Iron Man game? The VR already gives me a headache. Like, I've played with the VR, and I've done virtual reality stuff. Virtual reality gives me a headache, so there's no way I'm actually going to be able to get this game and be able to stomach it for more than, like, 20 minutes at a time. And this is really disappointing to hear because, not necessarily because it's on VR, but because... Well, actually, the reason is, is it because it's on VR. And it's one of those things where... 
I know they're supposed to be making like a cinematic universe, Marvel gaming universe type of thing, and Spider-Man was the kickoff for that. So to hear that there's an Iron Man game, like, oh shit, you know, this is like a continuation of the of what they started with the Spider-Man thing, like moving in to Spider-Man territory. And I'm like, this isn't it. <laughs> like this isn't it. Like no one's gonna play this game. Like even if the story is good, no one's really gonna play this game because no one really has a VR. And the people that do, they might get it, but it's not gonna do well. This game isn't gonna do well only because the VR, while it is a good virtual reality headset, it's the best on the market, honestly. It's still not, you know what I'm saying? It's still not something that everybody that has a PS4 has. You know, it's 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 almost as much as a separate console. Like I think a VR is like a little over two hundred bucks, almost maybe three hundred. And at that point, if you don't if you're deciding between like a VR and like a Switch, you might as well buy a Switch, you know what I'm saying? So not a lot of people have a VR, so it kinda sucks that the Iron Man game's gonna be on VR, but it's whatever. I mean, hopefully they realize that it wasn't the best idea and they try to rework it and give it like an actual like traditional like console release. And other than that, the state of play really didn't have anything that was interesting to me. I as I, I like I said, I watched bits and pieces of it and I was just like, yeah, this isn't it. Like like I said, it was their first one, so you know, they may, they may, you know, work on it, and then the next one they'll have it, they'll have a better one, because they are doing these just like Nintendo does theirs, like, they're gonna be quarterly, so every, so at least three times a year, we're gonna be hearing about the new games that they're working on, or new projects, hell, they may even announce the PlayStation 5 in one of them, but, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, this, this wasn't a great showing for their their version of Nintendo Directs. And, that, and one of the things that I feel like it was lacking too was like the personality that Nintendo Directs had. Nintendo Directs are very good. Whether the game that they review, whether the game that they show in the, the, the Direct are good or not, or whether I could care less about them, I gotta admit that Nintendo's presentation for these Directs is really good. Like they have on-screen talent. They do a good job of transitioning from game to game. They'll be like, hey, here's what's coming out for the Switch. And then they have the little Switch snap sound effect thing and they go to all Switch games and they may talk about Certain games are like if there's a focus for Nintendo Direct, like how the last one was focused on Fire Emblem, they really showed a lot of Fire Emblem stuff. Like they do a good job of transitioning through what they have to show off, even if it's not a lot. With State of Play, it felt like it just wasn't there. Like they didn't have the on-camera talent, they didn't have the transitions really there. It was okay. It's something that, of course, the next one I expect it to be better. You know, like I said, it is their first time doing this, so they may not have had time to iron out all the details of how they want these transitions to go and how they want this thing to work but hopefully we see in the next one that you know sony really brings it in like i said i don't mind these i just want to see them do better you know like i said just work on the transitions work on their your on-camera talent and give us a little bit more to show like give us something that people actually want to see you know what i'm saying like nintendo's first direct of the year kind of had that problem too where i mean fire Emblem was cool but they didn't really show off anything that was too like oh my gosh like they completely left out Luigi's Mansion Animal Crossing, and Animal Crossing, two games that are supposed to come out this year. So, you know, like, Sony, just work on it, bring something to the table. And this also transitions to what I want to talk about next is uh, the state of E3. Um, so, with this, Microsoft is really the only one showing up at E3 now, and they're super cocky about it. Like, like it means something. Like, you guys have, like... All these controllers, but no games. You guys have like another. You guys apparently might be showing off your your two new Xboxes, but you don't got any damn games to show us. So it doesn't really matter what you show off when you don't have any games to play on the thing. So that's that's kind of interesting. So E3, I'm curious to know what we're gonna do with E3 moving forward. I have 
thought about it and I talked about it with some friends. I'm like, I wonder what E3 is going to evolve into now that two of its biggest holders aren't there to really convince people to come because now that Sony's not there, and there's also a rumor that EA's not going to be there this year. That's recent. I heard that like yesterday, so I don't know about that. I'm going to have to look into that maybe in the next episode if, the, if it is confirmed. I'll definitely talk about it in the next episode. But if EA's bowing out too, it's like, dog, like, what's the point of going? You can't be charging people all this money to go out there and there's nobody there to talk to. Like a lot of people who are in the YouTube community and stuff like that go out to E3 to network and like, you know, meet the developers. But it's like if there are no developers there, there's no point in going. And it's funny because of the last few years, E3 has been open to the public. Like, the public can just show up. You don't have to, like, really, like, buy, like, the tickets like you used to. I mean, you have to buy tickets, but it's more public-oriented. And that's because E3 is just dying out. Like, E3 is like a dinosaur. It's the, it's the, it's the thing of a bygone era, you know? It's like, it's like Whitebeard, you know? <laughs> For those One Piece fans out there, it's like Whitebeard. You know, Whitebeard's dying. It's like, I'm the relic of a bygone era, and I need to die here. Like, it might be time for E3 to stand proudly on his feet and just... And, and die, die standing, because it's it's over, like, I don't see the point of going to E3 now, I remember as a kid, it used to be the one thing I always wanted to do, as a kid, as a gamer, I live, I live on the East Coast, so, like, it was a big deal, I could just go to E3 whenever I want, I can't just go to E3, it's a big deal, it's on the West Coast, I live on the East Coast, and I'm just like, bro, like, I've always wanted to go to E3, but now, that I'm finally an adult, and I'm finally in the position where I would eventually be able to go to E3 one of these years, because I make enough money, and, you know, I can save up money and do stuff like that, it's 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 a dying thing like it's not gonna be around anymore and i'm curious to see what they're gonna repurpose i think e3 might be get might get a repurpose and become more like a a pax type of deal like i mean pax is kind of like e3 but it's one of those things it's a little bit different so i wonder what e3 like what the the people who are in charge of e3 what they plan on doing to help to to maybe revitalize people's enthusiasm for E3, because E3, like I said, there's really no point of it, um, one of the things that I, I heard on, a, on another podcast I was listening to, is they brought up the idea that, like, you know, like, it doesn't make sense to spend all this money, spend millions of dollars to set up booths and set up a whole big stage show, when you can just stream it directly to your audience, you know what I'm saying, like, it's one of those things where, like, it doesn't make sense to do that, Nintendo thought about that years ago, and that's why they stopped going to E3 and started making Nintendo Directs, because it's easier, it saves a lot of money to just say, okay, we're gonna make a 35-minute video, or 20-minute video, here's all the games we got showing up, and one of the bonuses that Nintendo did was, instead of just having it once a year, they have it three times throughout the year, you have the Spring Direct, you have the Summer Direct, and you have the Fall Direct, and that's dope. So now, like I said, Sony's copying them, wants to follow up on, on Nintendo's lead and be like, okay, we're going to do the same thing. And then E3's is going to be looking bare. Like, there's nothing going on. Like I said, and if EA's bowing out, then that's another big company has gone. I know a lot of people don't care about EA or they hate EA or whatever, but it's like if, if another company bows out, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing really going on in E3 and there's no reason to actually spend the money to go all the way out there and just look at, like, these barely, like, active booths, like, it's like, okay, yeah, they're gonna have people on the show floor and stuff like that, and that, and little booths to maybe play some demos, but as far as, like, the big developers and all that stuff, they're probably not gonna be there, because there's no reason to be there, when they're gonna show all their stuff directly to their, to their audience through the internet, which is something that's just been slowly killing E3, and it, it's sad, but like I said, I think it might be time for it to pull a white beard, you know, the relic of a bygone era, and just stands up on its, on its feet, and just die out, and 
we move on, you know? Maybe they can repurpose E3 into something better. Maybe not. Who knows? I would like to see them try because I do think E3 still has the potential to come back, but it just has to be something more than what it is right now. What it is right now is just, here are a bunch of games that aren't coming out until, like, the fall. Or here's, like, us announcing a game, but we don't have any actual footage. You know what I'm saying? Maybe E3 should become more of a strict, like, okay, if you're not going to show at least 30 seconds of gameplay, don't bring it to E3. If you don't have a demo, don't bring it to E3. Because other than that, it's like all this stuff about people just announcing games. Most companies just announce their games through their Twitter or through their Instagram. You know what I'm saying? Like They, they announce their games through social media. They don't need to actually go to E3 to be like, hey, we're working on this game. We don't have anything to show, but it's coming. When they could just type that out on Twitter and be like, hey, we're working on this game. We'll have something to show in, like, I don't know, two or three months. You know what I'm saying? So E3 is just becoming a dying fad. Maybe they should become more strict with the rules and maybe encourage the idea of, like, instead of getting more demos, of getting actual footage from games that are coming out in the show floor to make people want to watch it. Because, as like I said, as right now, I really don't have a reason to watch E3 this year. I really don't. I don't care about Microsoft. I'm not going to watch Microsoft. I don't care about PC gaming stuff because I don't have a PC personally. Nothing against PC gaming. But I don't have PC, so I don't have anything to watch. The only reason I was going to go there to watch maybe Sony. You know, see what games they announced. And then Nintendo was probably going to show off. Probably focus on, like, some of the games that are coming out. Like, maybe Luigi's Mansion 3 and, like, Animal Crossing and, and Pokemon. But, like, I have no reason to really watch it. Like, Sony was the big dog. The big dog that brought us, that made us go, okay... We're all going to sit down tonight and watch the E3 press conference and see what Sony's bringing to the table. So for Sony to be backing out, it just makes you wonder, man, what what's going to happen to E3, you know? It's crazy to think about. It's crazy to think about. And that's all I got for the gaming section. Um, Pretty quick with today's stuff. I mean, don't, like I said, I didn't really have a lot to talk about in the music or the gaming section. Uh, the manga chapters are pretty, pretty short, too, because this time I'm back to reviewing two of them. But this is your warning. If you are not a manga reader of My Hero Academia and One Piece, see, this is your chance to bow out now. I will be spoiling the mo- the two most recent chapters for both series. So if you do not want to be spoiled, get out. <laughs> get out right now. And if you don't want to be spoiled, like I said, peace. Appreciate you. If you enjoyed today's episode, enjoyed the little things I had to say for like, I guess 15 minutes now, it hasn't been that long. If you enjoyed what I had to say, you know, make sure you tell a friend, tell a friend, tell a friend, and you know, support your boy, you know, you can subscribe to me here on Anchor.com, or Anchor.fm, or whatever, you can subscribe to me for, I believe, 99 cents, $5, or $10, if you want to subscribe, you know, support your boy, you know, I got bills to pay, whatever, whatever. Appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you in the next episode of the podcast. Now, moving on to manga stuff. My manga listeners, I know you've been waiting. It's time to talk about some big, big stuff in both One Piece and My Hero Academia. Starting with My Hero Academia as usual. Usually these chapters tend to be shorter. Uh, My Hero Academia, chapter 221, All for One's Gift, or a gift from All for One. Um, So we find out that this giant creature, his name is really hard to pronounce, so I'm just going to call him Giga. So Giga... Not to be confused with nigga. Giga is this giant rock-like bodyguard that used to protect uh, All For One around the time he got defeated by All Might. Like, when All Might beat him down back in the day, you know, he used to protect him. He he served as his bodyguard. And now he's beating on the League of Villains. Like, he's completely dominating them. Like, they have no chance 
Shigaraki can't do anything. Uh, Dobby's flames. He's like eating Dobby's fire. And this dude is just like a monster. Like he is unstoppable. And it's crazy to see that All For One had something this powerful just in the back. Just sitting behind him in the back waiting to be used whenever I guess he deemed those necessary. But it's crazy. And like how we left off in the last chapter, the doctor actually contacts them through a radio. And he plays a recording of All For One's voice to calm, Giga, to calm Giga down. And Giga's like, oh my god, it's like my master's voice. And he calms him down, and then the doc uses that weird black, like, um, goop that they use in the Kamino Ward arc to teleport all the League of Villain members to his current location. And this is where things get interesting. Um, this doctor appears to look like the doctor that Deku went to as a kid when he told him that he didn't have a quirk. And that's very interesting because a lot of people have been theorizing that that doctor actually works for All for One, which we do find out he does. And he's been stealing people or stealing people's quirks. But now we learned that he might be stealing just people in general. Like he he can modify people. We find out in this chapter he can modify people. And where he ta- when he summons... The League of Villains, they all end up in this uh, this high-end lab where he makes the high-end Nomus that Endeavor struggled to beat. Endeavor and Hawks had to team up just to beat this high-end Nomu, and he's just making them in this lab. And we find out that he probably has been kidnapping numerous people and, like, you know, like, using them to make these high-end Nomus. And pretty much... Uh, they're all caught by surprise, like, oh my god, like, this is the, this is the doctor, we find out, like I said, he looks exactly like the doctor that Midoriya went to as a kid, which is pretty scary, and then, the doctor, the the chapter ends with the doctor questioning their purpose, like, why are you doing this, like, you know what I'm saying, like, why, why are you really, like, doing this, Shigaraki, what's your goal, and that's how the chapter ends, but like I said, this this is a big reveal. This is really scary to think about because like I said, there's been a there's been that theory that the doctor that Midoriya went to as a kid is actually like working for all for one. And it looks like it might be true. Like I said, he looks very identical, and he made it very. There's no point in the chapter where he when they were gonna go like approach him, and he makes he makes like this weird motion to try and hides himself away. He's like, no, I can't let you guys like see what I really look like or know my real name or even my location. So that makes it really suspicious. That really feeds into the idea that this guy might be the guy that Midoriya went to. And he's like out here kidnapping children and people and experimenting on them and, and using their quirks to make high-end nomus. And he's been working with All for One this entire time. And it's so crazy because he's the Doctor's such a throwaway, a throwaway character that's like, you know, we saw him in the like the first episode of My Hero. Well, he's just like, yeah, sorry, kid, not going to happen. That was, those were literally his lines. That was all he said. And now he's coming back hundreds of chapters later. Or like a hundred chapters or so. Maybe even more than that. Later to be like, yeah, um, I work for All For One. And uh, I'm willing to help you. But I got to see what you're about. So why are you doing this, Shigaraki? What's your end goal? And that's just crazy to think about, man. Like that That's such a theory that has been tossed around i really didn't think would be true i didn't think anything of it now it's like yo this this is crazy so it's nice to see this and that's pretty much how the chapter ends uh moving on to chapter 222 uh tomura's distortion this is pretty much a chapter i'm actually was really excited to read because this gives us the backstory of tomura shigaraki and 
this is some dark stuff. Like, it's going to be really interesting to see how they handle this in the anime because the anime really... It, the anime is really good, but I do think one thing it's done really well when it comes to being as popular as it is that it's not too heavy when it comes to the subject matter. There are darker moments in the anime. Like, especially around season three, we had, like, some of the darker sides of things, but this is actually something that when the anime does get to this, however many arcs it takes, or however many seasons later... It's going to be really interesting because we learned that Tomura, he awakened his quirk and he ends up murdering his entire family. Those hands that he has on his body, like that you see on his face and on his arms, those little hands that he wears, are the body parts of his family members that he killed. That's disgusting. That's fucking disgusting. If I'm being 100% honest, that's fucking disgusting. And it's crazy that that is something we find out. And we learn that the reason he wears these body parts is because he really doesn't have a lot of memories of his family. But when he wears them, like when he does get these memories back, he kind of like has this moment where like he freaks out and he starts to have like panic attacks. But he wears those body parts to keep him calm. And that's, like I said, that's really, really gross that he wears the severed hands of his old body, mem- of his old uh, family members that he killed. And we also learn that, um, when all for one met him the first time you know they had a discussion about oh you know oh no one's come to save you and we got to get more context on that apparently people like random civilians would see saw tomura just sitting there like helpless and everyone kept saying oh a hero will come and save him a hero will come and help him and no one ever did so that's kind of sad but we learn like about you know, like, how he really met all, all for one, how all for one said, you know, from this moment on, he took him in, he gave him a room, he's like, you know, from this moment on, I'll be your master, and so he agreed to take care of him, and the doctor's in that scene, in that flashback, he's like, you know, should I experiment on him, and all for one's like, no, 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 we're just gonna raise him, we're gonna teach him how to control his rage, his anger, that outburst that he had that killed his family, we're gonna teach him how to harness that, and use that to harm people, like, you know, all for one's twisted, so he's gonna manipulate Tomura to using him for his own, you know, evil misdeeds. So it's kind of crazy to see that, like, you know, Tomura killed his family and he's like, you know, we're going to use him. Like, we're going to take advantage of this kid's, like, despair. And it does a really good job of showing how the hero society, how the society of My Hero Academia works because one of the things that uh, was brought up during the Kamino arc when All Might and all for one were fighting was you know when he revealed that you know Tomura Shigaraki is All Might's teacher Nana that's hit that's her grandson and All Might like freaks out like he has like this panic attack and he's like freaking out it really shows that how had All Might found Tomura and saved him Tomura really could have been a really good guy like even though his powers are kind of are very destructive and dangerous he could have been a good person it all really depends on you know who would have stepped in to save him no heroes actually stepped in to save him it was all for one a villain who found him and took him in and said oh you know i'll look out for you i'll do whatever you know i'll take care of you you know you'll be like i'll you'll be my pupil i'll raise you and it's crazy to think how different things would have been had all might found him you know had all might found him you know he probably took care of him too and be like you know like i'll raise you but then tomorrow would have been a good guy he would have been you know a good guy and that's kind of cool to see how you know easily how two-sided the world is you know your influencers and how you know when it feels like no one's there for you and people abandon you the person that saves you you become loyal to them 
regardless of whether or not they're really doing something that is morally good or bad. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, had he been saved by a hero, like I said, I had All Might found him once and took care of him, or Gran Torino or something like that, I had found him, I was like, oh yeah, you're Nana's grandson, I'll take care of you, and I'll raise you to be a good guy. He would have been a good person, but because he wasn't found by a good person, you know, he became who he is, this really psychotic and twisted man-child, and it's all because, you know, all for one found him and took him in and said, you know, I'll breed him to be what I need him to be. It's crazy how, like, really two-sided that coin is, how easily someone can either have been a good person or a bad person. Um, after that, we learn about Tomer's vision, which is a very simple vision, but I do like it because I feel like we don't get this very often with villains in any form of media. Is He just wants to destroy everything. Like, he... Full anarchy... Like, not anarchy, but he just full chaos. He does not care about anything he's like i don't i don't have some ultimate goal of like ruling the world or like just you know taking over the, the world i just want there to be chaos i just want to destroy everything there is and the doctor is like okay that's like the doctor laughs at him because he's like oh that's very childlike you know like you just want to destroy everything ha, 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 ha. that's very childlike but i'll lend you a hand so the doctor agrees to work with them he's gonna help them out but he does want them to prove their worth he does feel like they're still weak and that they have a lot to learn. So he does want them to prove their worth by going back and defeating Giga, which is what they do. With like the whole league does, except Dobby. Uh, Dobby actually kind of dismisses the idea of going back. He's like, you know what? Like this is your problem. Like Shigaraki, I really don't care. Besides, I have to go meet up with a very important ally, and that brings us back to the earlier part of the last arc with Hawks. Hawks is playing a double agent he's the number two hero right now he's playing a double agent he's working for the hero association but he's also pretending to work with dobby so that way he can get more information about the league of villains and you know dobby like i said he's he's dismissive of it he's like i don't care about you know helping you conquer that monster that's your problem that's not mine i'm gonna go do what i want to do so that's interesting you know dobby's showing his independence kind of separating from the group and the doctor ends up sending them back to where Giga is, and then Tomura claims, all right, your king has returned. You know, he's more confident now. He Now he plans on actually defeating Giga and taking him down and, you know, claiming his dominance, and now Giga hopefully will serve Tomura, which we all know that's eventually what's going to happen. Like, who knows how long it's going to take, but we know that he's going to defeat Giga, and then Giga's going to want to serve under Tomura. So that's interesting. And that's really cool, and I'm curious to see where it goes. Like, if they... If Tomer actually, when Tomer actually beats this thing, that's a very threatening villain to have on his side. It's going to make it interesting for when they have to go up against Midoriya and, like, how people like Midoriya, Bakugo, Todoroki, and all of them are going to counter that. How the hero's going to counter something that's so powerful that even All For One's been hiding from people. So it's curious. I'm curious to see how they go with it. And that's pretty much how the chapter ends. You know, Tomer said, I'm going to take you down and end of the My Hero. Really good chapter. Really nice to see the Tomura backstory. It's 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 sympathetic, but it's not the most sympathetic to me. I feel like there a lot of nowadays a lot of villains have to have these sympathetic backstories where we really feel for them and want to understand why they're motivated beyond them just being like an evil person and just wanting to cause chaos. Tomura's I didn't really feel sympathy, but I do like the idea, like I talked about earlier, the how really in the hero in the world of my academia 
everything's really on this this coin, this two-sided coin. You know, you have the heroes, you have villains, you have light, you have dark. Everything's really the whole premise of the world is based off of a coin in a weird way, like a metaphorical way. It's like it's a coin. Like I said, you if someone else had shown up and met Tomura that day, he could have easily been a completely different person. And that's so nice to see it in a very like visualized way of like, hey, you know, I'm gonna take care of you and then he became evil versus I had like I said, had All Might or Grant Torino show up and be like, I'm gonna take care of you, he would have been a really good guy. Like a really good hero even. So that's it for my hero academia. Um, moving on to One Piece. Uh, One Piece chapter nine thirty seven. Uh, the chapter starts with us with us seeing um, Olin or Big Mom and Chopper and all them headed to the Udon cat to the Udon prison still and she's her and uh, um, Tama are talking about uh, Oshiroku, which is like a very like Japanese type of like uh, sweet, like like red bean kind of sweet. And Chopper knows there isn't any Okirushu uh, at the Udon prison. And he's all like crying, like, oh my god, like, what have I done? I lied to her, and now when we get there and there's no Oshiruku, she's gonna like attack Luffy, who knows? And Chopper feels kind of bad. That was pretty much the end of that part, but then we cut to the prison, and we get a very interesting, interesting, interesting tidbit that I'm so excited about, and that is the advancement of armament hockey. So, while Luffy, Luffy, while Luffy has been taking down all these, all these guys that, uh, Queen has been sending to attack him. He's been trying to replicate something that he saw Rayleigh do back at the beginning of, ho- of his hockey training, which was like the ability to repel people with armament hockey. Now, what's so cool about this is one, not only does it call back to something that happened hundreds of chapters ago, but it also shows how clever Oda is as a writer because when watching that for the first time, when like, uh, Rayleigh repelled the elephant using armament hockey. I pers- me personally, I thought it was just Oda not having a clear idea of what armament hockey was at the time. So when he had the so that first example of it wasn't armament hockey, and then he wanted to visualize it better. Like I thought it was just like some early rendition of what armament hockey was, and he didn't know what to do with it. So when after the time skip he revised it and made it to where you know where how we see it now where arm hockey is you know you coat your arms or legs or body parts in like a black aura or like a black like armor like skin and then you use it that way but no like this is actually a form of arm hockey that's just way more advanced than the coating than the coating of the arm and legs or whatever and it's something that we actually saw back in marine fort uh the admirals aokiji uh kizaru and aokainu were doing this when um, Whitebeard made a quake. Like, he made this really big shockwave, and all of them stand out in front of... All of them jump down and put both their palms out and were holding their palms in, like, a very, like, open motion, and they were reflected. They were repelling the shockwave. Like I said, I thought it was something that was just a throwaway thing. And also, uh, Sentamaru, uh, the guy who attacked Luffy back at Sabaody, he was able to use this ability as well, which is another thing. It was like, holy shit, like, he, he was using, like, an advanced version of armor hockey, too. So now Luffy's finally trying to understand it and get better at it. And that's probably going to be what helps Luffy get a lot stronger armor hockey hockey advancement. Which is cool because in the last arc, uh, Whole Cake Island, we learned about the advanced version of Conqueror's Hockey. Which is, you know, the ability to see into the future. 
now we're getting the advanced version of arm in hockey, which is the ability to, I guess, repel or create armor without actually coating the body. Like, you can probably deflect attacks before they even get to you. Which brings up another thing now that I question about the armament hockey is we it's a safe assumption that Shanks has this advancement, but it also kind of adds credence to it with Shanks too because one of the the times we kind of get introduced to Whitebeard and Shanks and Whitebeard met up before the war, when Shanks was boarding the Whitebeard ship, people were passing out due to his Conqueror's hockey, but the ship itself was like cracking and like breaking and like shaking a little bit. Like there were parts of the ship, like the the wood along the ship was cracking and breaking. And I wonder, was that the Conqueror's hockey or was that Shanks's armament hockey doing that? I think it might fall into the realm of armament hockey because it's causing destruction. Like as we know, Conqueror's hockey incapacitates people, but it doesn't cause like the water, the environment around it to be disturbed. It's just like a shockwave of of willpower that knocks out weak. Or uh, low constitution people, so I wonder if the advancement of armor hockey can actually cause physical damage. Like you know, with the advancement of armor hockey, you can cause destruction as you walk, like how Shanks was doing. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then we get a scene of Queen eating Oshiroku, the thing that Big Mom <laughs> wants. So that very obvious that we're probably gonna get a Queen versus Big Mom fight because she's eating Oshiroku, he's eating Oshiroku. And Big Mom's going to show up, and she's going to want the Oshiroku, and that's going to lead to, like, a big fight. Obviously, Big Mom should wipe the floor with Queen. I don't I don't see Queen, like, beating Big Mom. He might be able to maybe hold his ground a little bit, because this might be a cool thing where, like, they show up. She wants the Oshiroku. She attacks Queen, and Queen reveals the devil fruit. And then he kind of, like, not beats her, but, like, holds his own for a little bit, and then she eventually will stomp him down, so that's kind of funny, so the setup is there, we just need Big Mom and them to arrive, but cool, we finally get a development on the advancement of armament hockey, and we also learn about something else that's really important in about hockey in this chapter, and that takes us into the next part of the chapter, which is Zoro versus Gyukimaru, the bandit that stole his sword in the last chapter, or not the last chapter, the chapter prior, but we find out that he, that he, that his name is Gikimaru, he's the thief, he's like a bandit, and he's been, ste- he stole Zoro's re- uh, Shisui, and he took it back to where it belongs, which is Ryuma's grave, and we learned some interesting stuff about Ryuma, we learned that back in the day, you know, Ryuma is considered to be the hero of Wano, like, like the, the sacred hero of Wano, like the protector of the land, because back in the day, Wano was seen as like, this valuable country, the country of gold, it had all these amazing resources, and all this fine material for the world, like the world government wanted it, like, pirates, everybody was after it, but Ryuma was the one that deterred everybody, like, he pulled out his sword, and he would fight anybody who came into Wano and tried to steal their stuff, he, like, protected the entire country, he was, like, the country, like I said, he was the country's, like, sacred hero, which is interesting, because... It's interesting that, like, Oda tied Ryuma in this way. Like, it's something that we knew we'd probably get, given that, you know, the earlier stuff in this arc where Zoro got Shisui taken from him. And, you know, they say, this doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the great hero Ryuma. This belongs to Ryuma, a very famous samurai. So it's good to see that this is coming back in. We also learned something very interesting about Shisui. The blade that Ryuma wielded, that it wasn't always a black sword. It was made that way. That is crazy. 
in the same chapter, we learn something else that's super crazy about Armahaki. So due to Ryuma's countless, numerous battles over the years, his blade eventually turned black. Which begs the question for a lot of things. One, obviously, a Zoro power-up is, is incoming. I don't know what the criteria is to turn your blade black. Maybe you have to embed it with a larger armament hockey, or maybe you have to fight with it while using armament hockey a lot, but definitely a Zoro power-up. I think his uh, Wadoichi Monji is going to be turned black. It makes sense, because that's the one sword that Zoro's had since the beginning of the series. It's a sword that, you know, he made. It's a sword that used to belong to Kuina. It's a sword that he made the vow with. When he said, you know, Luffy, I'll never be defeated again. So it makes sense if that blade turns black. But that brings up an idea that, like, yo, like, how how does it turn black? Like, is it, like I said, is it through constant battles? Is it through, you know, just embedding your sword with a lot of arm and hockey all at once? Like, I'm curious to know how it becomes black. And I said, I wonder if Zoro is going to make his blade black. Like, maybe at the end of Wano or in the middle of Wano. Maybe when his fights will push him to it. That's another interesting thing we learn about hockey. Um, and then the chapter pretty much, the pretty much, the chapter kind of like wraps up a little bit, or not like really wraps up, but like gets moves on to uh, a woman showing up, uh, which she's holding Toko. She's this mysterious woman, but she obviously looks like Kumurasaki. She's covering herself. She's bleeding, and she's like running away from Koamazu who is actually the murderer of the flower capital that we learned about back in the earlier part of this arc. If you guys remember, there was like this murderer going around the capital, killing all these people, and, you know, he's the one currently chasing Kumurasaki and Toko. He's trying to kill them in honor of the Shogun. And that's the other thing we learned. Uh, Koamazu is the... Uh, hired assassin of Shogun Orochi. Orochi's hired him to go around and kill people and stir up all this controversy, but he actually works for Orochi, which is really interesting. So, him and Zoro get into it. Like, it, Zoro kind of realizes that, oh, snap, this guy's, like, super strong. Like, I can't, I gotta, you know, do my thing. And then they start fighting. And then during the whole fight, uh, is like, interrupting. Like, he's constantly trying to take pod shots at Zoro when he's, like, you know, like, not paying attention to him. And Zoro calls him out on that, saying that he's being, like, a bastard for, like, you know, taking shots while he's in the middle of another fight. And then during one of those distractions, Zoro ends up getting stabbed through his shoulder. Like, a very, very lethal blow to the shoulder. But in epic, classic Zoro badassery fashion... He tightens up his muscles and steals that scythe thing that uh, Komazu is using, puts it in his mouth, and dices Komazu up with a purgatory onigiri, which perfect way to end the chapter. One great way to show off how badass Zoro is, as usual. You know, you know Zoro favorite character hashtag Zoro boys all day team Zoro Zoro over Sanji don't at me whatever 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 but yeah that's how the chapter ends Zoro apparently defeats Komazu one good attack epic as always for Zoro moving on to chapter 937 uh it's called the woman's secret uh Zoro beats Komazu like I said Yukimaru runs away after that after the defeat of uh, Komazu, Gyukimaru runs away and Zoro passes out, surprisingly, which brought up a lot of controversy in the community a bit because Zoro has been shown to take 
ridiculous amounts of damage and not pass out. And this wound, while serious, does not look that bad. Like, it's yeah, it's a shoulder wound. It's in his arm. It's, like, in his chest a little bit. But he's taken way worse and still been conscious. So for him to fall after something like this seems a little out of character for Zoro. I'm curious to know why Oda did that. Maybe the blade... Uh, one of the theories that Roger's base was throwing around was that uh, the blade may have been poisoned or something, but it seems a little odd that Zoro would fall after something like that, given that we've seen him take way more damage prior to this, and still been able to even, not only be conscious, but even fight, you know what I'm saying, like his fight with Daz Bones, he got, I, he got wrecked, like he was getting sliced to hell and back, and even after he took all Luffy's pain back on Thriller Park, you know, he was still conscious, like he was, he was weak as hell, but he was still conscious, you know what I'm saying, so for him to, one little shoulder wound to Knock Zoro out seems a little out of place for his character. Um, moving on from that part of the chapter, we go into a very interesting part of the chapter where uh, Kinemon, Inuarashi, and all of the minks find out that their plans have actually been leaked. Their plans have been leaked out. And the the Shogun and all of them know about the Fire Festival attack, or the attack on the Fire Festival, which is really interesting because now in the Flower Capital, you see that, like, Drake and uh, Hawkins are just taking down anybody who has, or just like on a manhunt, like they're just taking down anybody who has the moon, the crescent moon tattoo on their ankle. They're they don't they're not even going like place by place anymore. They literally like everybody get in the middle of the town, and we're gonna if you see a mark on your ankle, you're dying. Like they they are not playing around. Like they're just throwing people in jail. They're killing people. They don't care. Like so, it's pretty interesting. Which leads to another interesting part that uh, Shinobu, our female Konoichi thinks that uh, Law's crew, who was captured, uh, Beppo and some of the others, she thinks that Law's crew might be the ones who ratted out the plan. Might be the ones who snitched and told about the plan. And Law is visibly upset by this, obviously. You know, that's his crewmates. We don't... I personally don't think they snitched, but Law gets very mad. And he's like, you know, my crew would never do that. And like I said, I'm on Law's side here. I don't think Beppo and them told anybody. But they're like super upset and we get a very nice character moment for Shinobu. We kind of get, you know, this moment where she's like, you know, we've been waiting 20 years for this. For this chance to take down Orochi and Kaido and all this. We've been waiting for this moment. And now it's ruined. What the hell are we going to do? Like, this was our only plan. This plan had to go off. This had to work because we've been waiting 20 years. You know, a lot of our life has been wasted. A lot of our time in this war has been wasted waiting for you guys to come back and now everything's going up in flames and that's horrible that's horrible and i feel for shinobu there you know it's like i said like she's been waiting 20 years for this chance to free the country that she loves but yet the plan's been been ratted out and now we don't know what's gonna happen so law is trying to go save uh his 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 captured like crewmates but the others are trying to stop him because it might be a trap, which I think it is. Obviously, they want Law to show up and be like, hey, like, give back my crewmates and they're going to capture him or try to kill him or something like that. So, it's really interesting. Law's going after... Law wants to go after them. Shinobu's blaming them. But I really don't think Beppo and them sold out sold out the plan. As we saw when Kurumurasaki was, quote-unquote, killed by Kiyoshiru, we learned that he saw the, the, um, the paper. Like, the paper... Or the... the the little paper that has the plan on it. So he saw that. So that's maybe how he figured it out. And that's when he told everybody what was going on. So that was interesting. Uh, moving on to the very last part of the chapter. Zoro wakes up. And uh, 
Kumurasaki is tending to his wounds. She's, like, preparing, like, food and stuff like that. And they start talking. She gives him more information about Yukimaru and, like, how he's been, like, a bandit that's been stealing swords and the bridge bandit and all that type of stuff. And we learn something very, very, very important. We learn that Kumurasaki is, in fact, Hiyori, which is Momonosuke's older sister. She is looking... She's looking for Momonosuke. She's like, maybe you can help me find him. She has Oroki, help me find him. You know, that, that's my little brother. So that is confirmed. Kamurasaki is Hiyori. I think that's really interesting. Something that everybody had been theorizing that Kamurasaki was Hiyori. So that's cool to see that come to light. And what's interesting is that she's been taking care of Zoro. And little, little the fanboy in me wants to have this moment where Kamurasaki falls in love with Zoro just to piss off Sanji because I think that'd be super ironic and super funny if that like the girl the prettiest girl of Wano that everybody idolizes even Sanji falls in love with Zoro someone who really doesn't care about love or anything like that I think that'd be super funny super ironic so that'd be really funny to see I hope I hope that's kind of like a little that's like a little fanboy me wants that but like I said we got the big reveal and that's it we're on break next week which is disappointing but I'm not too disappointed it gives me a chance to for the next episode to review only one episode, and then I'll probably actually review the Black Clover chapter uh, next week, in next week's episode instead. That would be pretty cool, because the Black Clover's chapter for today was actually really interesting. Uh, but I'll probably talk about that, or I'll probably talk about that chapter in the next episode of the podcast. But uh, yeah, that's all I got on my show notes, guys. Uh, today's episode, I think, went over pretty well. Um, if you enjoyed today's episode... Be sure to tell a friend, to tell a friend, to tell a friend. And if you want to support your boy here on Anchor.fm.com, you can subscribe to the to the show for ninety nine cents, five dollars, or ten dollars. Really helps your boy out. Lord knows I got bills to pay. Shouts TBH. I'm stealing that one from him for a bit, but uh, yeah. If you enjoyed, make sure you tell tell a friend, to tell a friend, to tell a friend. I've been your host, Amateur Maxi, and I am out of here. <laughs>